I turned to him then as we walked together in rapid step beside the lake. I even smiled. A swim, I say, that sounds nice. He answers by putting his binocular strap around my neck. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Lee Gilmore, who I selected Maggie O'Farrell's Neck, which is the first chapter in her 2018 memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. Lee Gilmore is currently a visiting professor in the Department of English at Ohio State and a core member of the Project Narrative faculty. She has previously been associate professor and professor at Ohio State and the Dorothy Cruikshank Backstrand Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Scripps College. Lee has also held visiting appointments at University of California, Berkeley, UC Santa Cruz, Northeastern University, and Harvard Divinity. Lee has written extensively and influentially as a feminist theorist of life writing, especially about the relations among trauma, cultural practices of judgment, and literary innovation. Her books include Autobiographics, A Feminist Theory of Women's Self-Representation, 1994, The Limits of Autobiography, Trauma and Testimony, 2001, as well as a second edition forthcoming in 2023, Tainted Witness, Why We Doubt What Women Say About Their Lives, 2017, and with Elizabeth Marshall, Witnessing Girlhood, Toward an Intersectional Tradition of Life Writing. Lee's new book, The Me Too Effect, What Happens When We Believe Women, is forthcoming in 2023. Lee writes regularly for WBUR's online commentary platform, Cognoscenti. Lee, is there anything you'd like to say about Maggie O'Farrell or her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, before you read Neck? And is there anything you'd like our listeners to pay special attention to as you read it? Well, because this is a narrative theory podcast, I thought I'd call attention to some of the paratextual elements of the book that readers are unlikely to have a sense of without access to the physical book itself. And I would note that since Janae has written about an apparatus of external cues that present the work to us and that enable us to anticipate what kind of a text we're reading, that as a scholar of life writing, I'm very practiced at flipping to the back cover, looking at the author photograph, something about the biography of the author, what people have said about this particular book, flipping to the cover, looking at the title, the illustration, and then being instantly confounded by the I speaking in the text, what is being shaped, who is shaping it, how it's related to the experience of the author. So I would say to listeners that all of that is in play, even though we are reading a memoir written by a real person about her real experiences, this is nonetheless a shaped I in the shaped um, narrative that's in front of us. So Maggie O'Farrell is an Irish writer. She lives in London. She's the author of several novels, including one that listeners might know, Hamnet, which is about the death of Shakespeare's son and as the personal source material for the play Hamlet. We also learn that the memoir we're reading was a number one best-selling text for the London Sunday Times. 
This is a non-chronological autobiographical narrative that's organized around experiences of violence. And each chapter is named for a part of the body and gives a date of the experience. So in terms of what to listen for, to pay special attention to, the event narrated in the first chapter that I'm about to read is not the earliest memory O'Farrell recounts, but listeners could think about what kind of a beginning this is for a memoir. Why is this the first thing that O'Farrell wants to say first? And also to listen to how she organizes the pace of these sentences, how the short sentences and the piling up of clauses alerts us that in these moments when her syntax tightens, that she's telling us something about the difficulty of telling a trauma narrative. Okay, great, Lee. Thank you. So now here's Lee Gilmore reading Maggie O'Farrell's Nick. On the path ahead, stepping out from behind a boulder, a man appears. We are, he and I, on the far side of a dark tarn that lies hidden in the bowl-curved summit of this mountain. The sky is a milky blue above us. No vegetation grows this far up, so it is just me and him, the stones and the still black water. He straddles the narrow track with both booted feet, and he smiles. I realize several things. That I passed him earlier, farther down the glen. We greeted each other in the amiable yet brief manner of those on a country walk. That, on this remote stretch of path, there is no one near enough to hear me call. That he has been waiting for me. He has planned this whole thing, carefully, meticulously, and I have walked into his trap. I see all this in an instant. This day, a day on which I nearly die, began early for me, just after dawn, my alarm clock leaping into a rattling dance beside the bed. I had to pull on my uniform, leave the caravan, and tiptoe down some stone steps into a deserted kitchen, where I flicked on the ovens, the coffee machines, the toasters, where I sliced five large loaves of bread, filled the kettles, folded 40 paper napkins into open-petaled orchids. I have just turned 18 and I have pulled off an escape from everything, home, school, parents, exams, the waiting for results. I have found a job far away from everyone I know in what is advertised as a holistic alternative retreat at the base of the mountain. I serve breakfast. I clear away breakfast. I wipe tables. I remind guests to leave their keys. I go into the rooms and make the beds. I change the sheets. I tidy. I pick up clothes and towels and books and shoes and essential oils and meditation mats from the floor. I learn from the narratives inherent in possessions less strewn around the bedrooms that people are not always what they seem. The rather sententious, exacting man who insists on a specific table, certain soap, and entirely fat-free milk has a penchant for cloud-soft cashmere socks and exuberantly patterned silk underwear. The woman who sits at dinner with her precisely buttoned blouse and lowered eyelids and growing out perm has a nocturnal avatar who will don S&M outfits of an equestrian bed, human bridles, tiny leather saddles, a slender but vicious silver whip. The couple from London who seem wonderingly, enviably perfect. They hold manicured hands over dinner. They take laughing walks at dusk. They show me photos of their wedding, have a room that is steeped in sadness, in hope, in grief. Ovulation kits clutter their bathroom shelves. 
Fertility drugs are stacked on their nightstands. These I don't touch, as if to impart the message, I didn't see this. I am not aware. I know nothing. All morning, I sift and organize and ease the lives of others. I clear away human traces, erasing all evidence that they have eaten, slept, made love, argued, washed, worn clothes, read newspapers, shed hair and skin and bristle and blood and toenails. I dust. I walk the corridors, trailing the vacuum cleaner behind me on a long leash. Then around lunchtime, if I'm lucky, I have four hours before the evening shift to do whatever I want. So I have walked up to the lake, as I often do during my time off, and today, for some reason, I have decided to take the path right around to the other side. Why? I forget. Maybe I finished my tasks earlier that day. Maybe the guests had been less untidy than usual, and I'd got out of the guest house before time. Maybe the clear, sunbright weather has lured me from my usual path. I have also had no reason at this point in my life to distrust the countryside. I've been to self-defense lessons held at the community center in the small Scottish seaside town where I spent my teens. The teacher, a barrel-shaped man in a judo suit, would put scenarios to us with startling gothic relish. Late at night, and you're coming out of a pub, he would say, eyeing us one by one from beneath his excessively sprouting eyebrows, and a huge bloke lunges out from an alleyway and grabs you. Or... You're in a narrow corridor in a nightclub, and some drunk shoves you up against a wall. Or, it's dark, it's foggy, you're waiting at the traffic lights, and someone seizes your bag strap and pushes you to the ground. These narratives of peril always end with the same question, put to us with slightly gloating rhetoric. So, what do you do? We practiced reversing our elbows into the throats of our imaginary assailants, rolling our eyes as we did so, because we were, after all, teenage girls. We took it in turns to rehearse the loudest shout we could. We repeated dutifully, dully, the weak points in a male body, eye, nose, throat, groin, knee. We believed we had it covered, that we could take on the lurking stranger, the drunk assailant, the bag-snatching mugger. We were sure we'd be able to break, the, to break their grip, bring up our knee, scratch at their eyes with our nails. We reckoned we could find an exit out of these alarming yet thrilling synopses. We were taught to make noise to attract attention, to yell police. We also, I think, imbibed a clear message. Alleyway, nightclub, pub, bus stop, traffic lights. The danger was urban. In the country or in rural towns like ours, where there were no nightclubs, no alleyways, and no traffic lights, even things like this did not happen. We were free to do as we pleased. And yet, here is this man, high up on a mountain, blocking my way, waiting for me. It seems important not to show my fear, to play along, so I keep walking, keep putting one foot in front of the other. If I turned and run, he could catch up with me in seconds, and there would be something so exposing, so final about running. It would uncover to us both what the situation is. It would bring things to a head. The only option seems to be carry on, to carry on, to pretend that this is perfectly normal. Hello again, he says to me and his gaze slides over my face, my body, my bare bandy legs. It is a glance more assessing than lascivious, more calculating than lustful. It is the look of a man working something out, planning the logistics of a deed. I cannot meet his gaze. I cannot look at him directly. Not quite, but I am aware of narrow-set eyes, a considerable height, ivory-colored incisors, fists gripping his rucksack straps. I have to clear my throat to say, hi. I think I nod. 
I turned myself sideways to a, so as to step past him, a sharp mix of fresh sweat, leather from his rucksack, some kind of chemical-heavy shaving oil that seems distantly familiar. I am past him. I am walking away. The path is open before me. He has, I note, chosen for his ambush the apex of the height. I have climbed and climbed, and it is at this point that I will start to descend the mountain to my guest house, to my evening shift, to work, to life. It's all downhill from here. I am careful to use strides that are confident, purposeful, but not frightened. I am not frightened. I say this to myself over the oceanic roar of my pulse. Perhaps, I think, I am free. Perhaps I have misread the situation. Perhaps it's perfectly normal to lie and wait for young girls on remote paths and then let them go. I am 18, just. I know almost nothing. I do know, though, that he is right behind me. I can hear the tread of his boots, the swishing movement of his trouser fabric, some kind of breathable, all-weather affair. And here he is again, falling into step beside me. He walks closely, intimately, his arm at my shoulder, the way a friend might, the way I walked home from school with classmates. Lovely day, he says, looking into my face. I keep my head bowed. Yes, I say it is. Very hot. I might go for a swim. Something peculiar about his diction, I realize, as we tread the path together with rapid, synchronized steps. His words halt mid-syllable. His R's are soft. His T's over-enunciated. His tone flat almost expressionless. Maybe he's slightly touched, as the expression goes, like the man who used to live down the road from us. He hadn't thrown anything out since the war and his front garden was overrun, like Sleeping Beauty's castle with ivy. We used to try to guess what some of the leaf-draped objects were. A car, a fence, a motorbike? He wore knitted hats and patterned tank tops and two small once-smart suits that were coated with cat hair. If it was raining, he slung a bin liner over his shoulders. Sometimes he would come to our door with a zipped bag full of kittens for us to play with. Other times he would be drunk, livid, wild-eyed, and ranting about lost postcards. And my mother would have to take him by the arm and lead him home. Stay there, she would say to us. I'll be back in a tick. And she'd be off down the pavement with him. Maybe, I think, with a flood of relief, that's all this means. This man might be like our neighbor, eccentric, different, now long dead, his house cleared and sanitized, the ivy hacked down and burnt. Perhaps I should be kind as my mother was. I should be compassionate. I turned to him then as we walked together in rapid step beside the lake. I even smile. A swim, I say. That sounds nice. He answers by putting his binocular strap around my neck. A day or so later, I walk into the police station in the nearby town. I wait in line with people reporting lost wallets, stray dogs, scraped cars. The policeman at the desk listens, head cocked to the side. Did he hurt you? This is his first question. This man, did he touch you, hit you, proposition you? Did he do or say anything improper? No, I say. Not exactly, but, but what? He would have done, I say. He was going to. The man looks me up and down. I'm wearing patched cutoffs, numerous silver hoops through the cartilage of my ears, tattered sneakers, a t-shirt with a picture of a dodo and the words, have you seen this bird on it? I have a mane, there, really, there isn't really any other word to describe it, of wild hair, into which a guest, a serene-faced Dutch woman, who had traveled to the guest house with her harp and the felting kit, has woven beads and feathers. I look like what I am, a teenager who has been living alone for the first time in a caravan, in a forest, in the middle of nowhere. So, the policeman says, leaning heavily on his papers, 
You went for a walk. You met a man. You walked with him. He was a bit peculiar, but then you got home okay. Is that what you're telling me? He put, I say, the strap of his binoculars around my neck. And then what? He, I stop. I hate this man with his thick eyebrows, his beery paunch, his impatient stubby fingers. I hate him more, perhaps, than the man beside the tarn. He showed me some ducks on the lake. The policeman doesn't even try to hide his smile. Right, he says, and shuts his book with a snap. Sounds terrifying. How should I have articulated to this policeman that I could sense the urge for violence radiating off the man like heat off a stove? I had been over and over that moment at the desk in the police station asking myself, was there anything I could have done differently, anything I might have said that would have changed what happened next? I could have said, I want to see your supervisor. I want to see the person in charge. I would do this now, age 43, but then it didn't occur to me it was possible. I could have said, listen to me. That man didn't hurt me, but he will hurt someone else. Please find him before he does. I could have said that I have an instinct for the onset of violence, that for a long time I seem to incite it in others for reasons I never quite understood. If as a child you're struck or hit, you will never forget that sense of your own powerlessness and vulnerability of how a situation can turn from being benign to brutal in the blink of an eye, in the space of a breath. That sensibility will run in your veins like an antibody. You learn fairly quickly to recognize the approach of these sudden acts against you, that particular pitch or vibration in the atmosphere. You develop antennae for violence, and in turn, you devise a repertoire of means to divert it. The school I went to seemed steeped in it. The threat, like smoke, filled the corridors, the halls, the classrooms, the aisles between desks. Heads were smacked, ears were gripped, chalk dusters were thrown with smarting accuracy. One teacher had the habit of picking up kids he didn't like by the waistbands of their trousers and launching them at the walls. I can still recall the sound of child cranium hitting Victorian tile. For the worst offenses, boys were sent to the headmistress, where they were given the cane. Girls got the dap. I used to look at my daps, those black canvas shoes with a horseshoe of elastic across the front that we were made to wear when climbing over gym horses, and in particular their grayish rippled soles and imagine the impact rubber on exposed flesh. The headmistress was an object of awed fear. Her sinewy neck and bird claw hands, her scarves skewered to sweaters with a silver pin, her office with its dark walls and wine-colored rug. If called there to demonstrate skills with coded reading books, I would look down at this rug and picture having to stand there, my skirt pulled up, awaiting my fate, bracing myself for the blow. It filtered down to the students, of course. Chinese burns were particularly popular when the skin of your forearm could be wrung like a damp cloth into vivid ellipses, hair pulling, toe crushing, head locking, finger twisting. There was a large and ever expanding range at the bully's disposal. I had the misfortune of not speaking with a local accent, of being able to read before I got there, of having an appearance that I was informed was abnormal, offensive, unacceptable in some way of wearing skirts that had been taken up and let down too many times, of being sickly and missing large chunks of school, of stammering whenever called on to speak, of having shoes that weren't patent leather and so on. I remember a boy in my class trapping me behind the brick shelter and wordlessly yanking me up by the straps of my sundress until they cut into my underarms. He and I never referred to this incident again. I remember an older girl with a glossy dark fringe materializing from the playtime crowd to grind my face into the bark of a tree. 
In my first term at comprehensive school, in the middle of a chemistry lesson, I was punched in the face by a 12-year-old skinhead. If I probe my upper lip with the tip of my tongue, I can still feel the scar. So when the man put the binocular strap around my neck, even though he was saying something about wanting to show me a flock of eider ducks, I knew what came next. I could smell it. I could almost see it there, thickening and glittering in the air between us. This man was just another in a long line of bullies who had taken exception to my accent or my shoes or God knows what. I had long since stopped caring and he was going to hurt me. He meant to inflict harm, rain it down on my head, and there was nothing I could do about it. I decided I must play along with the bird watching game. I knew that this was my only hope. You can't confront a bully. You can't call them out. You can't let them know that you know, that you see them for what they are. I glanced through the binoculars for the length of a single heartbeat. Oh, I said, eider ducks, goodness. And I ducked down and away out of the circle of that strap. He came after me. Of course he did with that length of black leather, intending to lasso me again. But by this time, I was facing him. I was smiling at him, gabbling about eider ducks and how interesting they were. Did eider downs used to be made of them? Is that where the name came from? Were they filled with eider duck feathers? They were. How fascinating. Tell me more. Tell me everything you know about ducks, about birds, about bird watching. Goodness, how knowledgeable you are. You must go bird watching a lot. You do? Tell me some more about it about the most unusual bird you've ever seen. Tell me while we walk, because is that the time I really must be going now? Down the hill, because I have to start my ship. Yes, I work just there. You see those chimneys? That's the place. It's quite close, isn't it? There will be people waiting for me. Sometimes if I'm late, they'll come out to look for me. Yes, my boss, they'll be waiting. He walks up here all the time too. All the staff do. He knows I'm out here. He certainly does. He knows exactly where. I told him myself, he'll be out looking for me any minute now. He'll be just around that corner. Sure, we can walk this way. While you do, why don't you tell me some more about bird watching? Yes, please. I'd like that. But I really must rush because they are waiting. Two weeks later, a police car drives up the winding track to the guest house and two people get out. I see them from an upper window where I'm wrestling pillows into their cases. I know straight away what they are doing here, why they have come. So even before I hear someone calling my name, I am walking down the stairs to meet them. These two are nothing like the policemen at the station. They are in suits, their demeanor serious, focused. They proffer badges and documents to my boss, Vincent, with faces that are still with practiced, skilled neutrality. They want to talk to me in private, so Vincent shows them into an unoccupied room. He comes in with us because he is a good man, and I am only a few years older than his own children whose cries and shouts can be heard from the back lawn. I sit on a bed I made that morning, and the policeman sits on an ornamental wicker table where some guests like to take their morning tea. The policewoman seats herself next to me on the bed. Vincent hovers in the background, muttering mistrustfully, pretending to adjust a crystal hanging at the window to wipe non-existent dust off the mantelpiece to rattle the firearms in the grate. He's a former flower child, a hate Ashbury survivor, and has a low opinion of what he calls the fuzz. The police ignore him in a polite but preoccupied way. They are interested, the woman tells me, in a man I encountered recently on a walk. Would I be able to tell them exactly what happened? So I do. I start at the beginning, describing how I passed him early on the hike, how he headed off in the opposite direction, then somehow appeared ahead of me, 
I don't know how he did that, I say, because there isn't a shortcut or not one that I know of. They nod and nod, listening with measured intensity, encouraging me to go on. Their eyes never leave my face. I have their absolute attention. When I get to the part about the binocular strap, they stop nodding. They stare at me, both of them. Their eyes unblinking. It is a strange, congested moment. I don't think any of us breathes. A binocular strap, the man asks. Yes, I say. And he put it around your neck. I nod. They look away, look down. The woman makes a note of something in her book. Would I be willing, she asks, as she hands me a folder, to take a look at some photographs and let them know if I see him there. At this point, my boss interrupts. He can't not. You don't have to say anything. You know, you don't. She doesn't have to say anything. The policewoman is putting up her hand to silence him, just as I am placing my index finger on a photograph. That's him, I say. The detectives look. The woman notes something again in her book. The man thanks me. He takes the folder. He killed someone, I say to them, didn't he? They exchange an unreadable glance but say nothing. He strangled someone with his binocular strap. I looked from one to the other, and we know, we all know, didn't he? From across the room, Vincent swears softly. Then he walks over and gives me his handkerchief. The girl who died was 22. She was from New Zealand and was backpacking around Europe with her boyfriend. He was unwell that day, so had stayed behind at their hostel while she went off on a hike alone. She was raped, strangled, then buried in a shallow pit. Her body was discovered three days later, not far from the path where I had been walking. I only know all this because I read about it in the local newspaper the following week. The police wouldn't tell me. I saw a headline in the newsagent's window, went in to buy a paper, and there was her face, looking out at me from the front page. She had light-colored hair, held back in a band, a freckled face, a wide, guileless smile. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that I think about her, if not every day, than most days. I am aware of her life, which was cut off, curtailed, snipped short, whereas mine, for whatever reason, was allowed to run on. I never knew if they caught him, if he was convicted, sentenced, imprisoned. I had the distinct feeling during the interview that those detectives were on to him, that they had him, that they just needed my corroboration. Maybe the DNA samples were incontrovertible. Maybe he confessed. Maybe there were other witnesses, other victims, other near misses who gave evidence in court. I was never asked and was too green or I suspect too shocked to pursue the matter, to call the police and say, what happened? Did you catch him? Has he been put away? I left the area not long afterwards, so can never be certain. All this happened long before a time of ubiquitous and instantly available news. I can find no sign, no trace of this crime on the internet despite numerous searches. I don't know why he spared me, but not her. Did she panic? Did she run? Did she scream? Did she make the mistake of alerting him to the monster he was? For a long time, I dreamt about the man on the path. He would appear in a variety of disguises, but always with his rucksack and binoculars. Sometimes, in the murk and confusion of a dream, I would recognize him only by these accoutrements, and I would think, oh, it's you again, is it? You've come back. It is a story difficult to put into words. I never tell it, in fact, or never have before. I told no one at the time, not my friends, not my family. There seemed no way to translate what had happened into grammar and syntax. I have, now I think about it, only ever told one person, and that was the man I would eventually marry, and it only came out years after we first met. 
I told him one evening in Chile as we sat together in the refectory of a traveler's hostel. The expression on his face was one of such deep visceral shock that I knew I would probably never tell it again verbally in my lifetime. What happened to that girl and what so nearly happened to me is not something to be lightly articulated, molded into anecdote, formed into a familiar spoken groove to be told and retold over a dinner table or on the telephone, passed from teller to teller. It is instead a tale of horror, of evil, of our worst imaginings. It is a story to be kept battened down in some wordless, unvisited dark place. Death brushed past me on that path, so close that I could feel its touch, but it seized that other girl and thrust her under. I still cannot bear anyone to touch my neck, not my husband, not my children, not a kindly doctor who once wanted to check my tonsils. I flinch away before I even register why. I can't wear anything around it. Scarves, polo necks, choker necklaces, any top or blouse that applies pressure there. None of these will ever be for me. My daughter recently pointed to the top of a hill seen on our walk to school. Can we go up there? Sure, I said, glancing up at the green summit. Just you and me? I was silent for a moment. We can all go, I said, the whole family. Alert as ever to the moods of others, she immediately caught the sense that I was holding something back. Why not just you and me? Because everyone would like to come too. But why not you and me? Because, I was thinking, because I cannot begin to say, because I cannot articulate what dangers lie around corners for you, around twisting paths, around boulders, in the tangles of forests, because you are six years old, because there are people out there who want to hurt you and you will never know why, because I haven't yet worked out how to explain these things to you. But I will. Thanks, Lee. That was great. Just one preparatory note for our listeners. In order to distinguish between Maggie O'Farrell as the writer of the memoir and Maggie O'Farrell as the character who experiences the events of the neck, we'll refer to the writer as O'Farrell and the character as Maggie. So Lee, perhaps you could begin with some initial observations about how O'Farrell takes the raw materials of what happened to her and shapes them into this narrative. Well, I want to say how honored I am to be invited to this podcast and to talk about this complex work of life writing with such an innovative expert on narrative theory. This is really a great pleasure for me. I've been wanting to talk with someone about this memoir, and I can't think of a better interlocutor than you, Jim. Well, thank you, Lee. Let's get to it. <laughs> okay. So this story is, in one sense, a warning for her daughter that there are bad men in the world and they could hurt you. And it's a narrative of that. It sets up a narrative. It, it refers to memories of being bullied, how they inform her foreknowledge that this was also a bad experience, how that experience remapped her, her sense of safe places and dangerous places, and how the risk that she survived stays with her in the form of the woman who did not survive. So it's a narrative of that, a warning about danger, and it's also a warning about how to tell and how not to tell the story of trauma. And, and so those two trace related paths mm -hmm. through the chapter, but they're distinctive paths. Right. They're, they have different inflection points. The, the voice changes. Right. We have a sense of sliding in and out of the story of the near assault. 
and sliding into a story of the assault that's kind of directed to her daughter as the intended addressee, and then a story of how to hear it wrong, which I think is addressed to us as an audience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I like I like that a lot because the, the ways in which you know she brings in the idea of the her relationship to telling the story, right? So that you know she mentions that she's only ever told it once before to a, to the man who would become her husband, and that you know the the events and the effects of the story are something that she's going to have to tell to her daughter. And then, in fact, then we have the fact that she has actually now formulated it, you know, in writing in this way. So the idea of it being, you know, something that she has to tell because she now has a daughter and because she wants to give that warning to her, I think adds a whole other dimension to the experience itself, which is very tellable, very harrowing, obviously. So, I mean, maybe one place to start is with that idea of her foreknowledge. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and I'd be interested to hear you talk about it, is the way in which she has the self-defense classes. The lesson that she takes from that is that she, it's, it's urban areas that she has to worry about, right? But it's also, I mean, some skills, right? They know, you know, the vulnerable parts of a man's body, et cetera, right? They've imagined many scenarios. And when, but when she's confronted with this man in the country, she doesn't go to those self-defense skills, right? She goes to other skills, right? Really kind of a reading of the situation and, and you know, and kind of verbal skills. So, you know, you have thoughts about that? Well, I, I, I do that appreciate your zeroing in on her preparation to survive this attack. Right. And, you know, as a, as a woman who's walked through parking lots with my keys laced in my fingers I, and who's never had the opportunity to jab out somebody's eyes with those keys, <laughs> I can tell you that there's a lot of warning information that's probably good in the sense that, you know, if you ever could use it, that would you'd be good that you knew it yeah. and that it alerts you that danger is present. But a rote application of that advice doesn't necessarily work in the moment. Right. And, and so I think the what Neck sets up is a sense of, of feral as someone who knows something about narrative. Mm -hmm. She tells us early on in the chapter that there are, that the objects in the rooms that she cleans mm -hmm. are filled with narrative. Right. And she says, I learned from the narratives inherent in possessions left strewn around the bedrooms that people are not always what they seem. Yeah. And in, in the same way, she, she knows who, she knows that this guy means her harm, even though he's like kitted out in bird watching gear, mm -hmm. which would be a kind of costume for him if someone other than his intended target of violence were to come upon the two of them or to come upon him in that setting. Right. And even to um, disarm her initially. Right. And, yeah. and because time is of the essence in this, in this, in any attack, as she points out to us. So she's been, you know, she's self-defense classes call us to a world in which teenage girls 
are told both that they're in danger all the time and that they can escape if they do these things. And so some of the things that she, one of the things that she learns to do metaphorically is to yell police. And when she does that, when she goes to the police, that doesn't work. Right, right. The full on frontal physical fight, she chooses not to do that, which is the right choice. Right. And she even ponders if the girl who was murdered maybe followed the script she was given for right. how to survive and, and found that it failed. Yes, right. So there's like these layerings of what's a narrative, yeah. what's a useful narrative, yeah. what's not. Right, right. Good. So there's a lot there, I think, maybe we unpack a little bit. So one is, uh, in terms of how she tells the story, right, she gets to the point of narrating in the historical present mm -hmm. that he put the binocular strap around her neck, right? Then we get the white space, or you paused in the, in the oral reading appropriately, and then we go a day or so later, I walk into the police station, Right. So that's uh, that's interesting in lots of ways. One is that, OK, you know, she's sort of keeping us in suspense about, all right, well, what happened, you know, between the the, the time that you, you know, that he put the strap around your neck and you when you walked into the police station. Obviously, we know you survived because you're you're telling the story, but still there's this thing about how we get that. But then it also, I think, you know, as you were saying, right, this is we can see this, okay, so I survived, then I called the police, right? I shouted police, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens, right? And here, I think the way in which some of the narrative ideas work are also really important, right? He, he's trying to find a narrative from her, right? But what, let's talk about him as, as a reader, as, a, as somebody who pieces this together, what 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 stands out for you in the way he responds to her? So he, as a as a police officer, is as familiar as anyone could be with the ubiquity of male violence. Okay. So he doesn't, or or we don't imagine that he would have to stretch very far to meet her halfway right. in the telling, and that his. His refusal, his almost sadistic and gleeful refusal mm -hmm. to meet her halfway, his distortion and minimization of what she's telling him, strikes us as peculiarly cruel coming from someone who knows better. Good. So I think he, he can't really pass himself off as someone who's not knowing. Mm -hmm. He's willfully unknowing yeah. in this case. And, and that's, you know, that's notable to her is perhaps it's why she says, I hate him more than the man at right, the barn. Right, right, right. Yeah, he takes what she tells him and reduces it in this to his narrative, right? You went for a walk, you met a man, you walked with him, he was a bit peculiar, but then you got home okay, right? And he, he just, he, that allows him to dismiss when she says, he put the strap of his binoculars around my neck, right? I mean, he... Exactly. He, his story, his, his storytelling is a sort of narrative art that we now refer to as gaslighting. It's a yeah. rewriting of reality. Right. Okay. And it, so it denies her position as an authority of her own experience. It denies her position as a teller and inserts him instead as the one who has control over what happened to her. Mm -hmm. So when right. he says, you went for a walk, you met a man, you walked with him. 
he's turning it into a romance narrative. Mm-hmm. So you met a fella on the way. And, and this is not what happened. She was confronted by a stranger who used a binocular strap as a ligature right. to strangle her in preparation to rape and murder her. Right. So she has a different story. Yeah. And she has a story that she's ready to tell. Yeah. And she offers it to him and he, he refuses it. Right. So, they refuse the crucial detail. All right. As you said, the ligature, the strap is a ligature, right? That's what he, that's not in his story, right? He, 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 he doesn't, you know, admit that into his, his account of her experience, right? That's right. He becomes a, a guy who was maybe a little peculiar and, and she has already attempted to cast him as that before he's, before the binocular strap. Right. She, she recounts going to her memory, both in her shock at this terrible thing that's unfolding and she knows what's going to happen and finding her mother, finding the presence of her mother who handled this chaotic and volatile neighbor who not only, you know, brought by kittens to play with, but also showed up ranting and that her mother knew how to handle him. So in some sense, she's calling in this prior experience to right, and, what and, she's and doing then now. She, she says, "I felt so relieved, right? Oh, maybe you know that when I got this hypothesis about what the narrative is that I'm, you know, engaged in here, right? Yeah, so she's done that, right? He's, so really, yeah. that's exactly you know apt for our conversation about what kind of a narrative is this? How are the sliding narratives right. operating?" both in the moment that she's recounting mm-hmm. from a distance of 25 years right. and in the telling that we're experiencing in the present, in the, the present the of our reception of this, right. of, of the yeah. narrative mm-hmm. that tasks us with doing better than the policeman did, but that also puts a couple of things very tightly together. One is the how violence feels. And she talks about, I know what this guy's going to do because I was bullied in school and there's a atmosphere of it it's thick right so she uses sort of imagery of 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 things that clog the senses things that obscure an ability to feel and touch reality but that give her knowledge about the truth that lies behind what you can maybe see on the surface the event that gets the same kind of description is when the detectives come and Mm -hmm. she talks about that kind of coagulated hush that falls over them when they know right what was what they know what happened but they know what would have happened to her right and she she narrates that in the same way that she narrates the event at the tarn mm-hmm. and 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 so i think what she's asking us to understand is that Narratives carry knowledge. They carry a certain kind of charge mm-hmm. with them. The stories of a bloke grabs you, pushes up against you in the corridor mm-hmm. are kind of set scripts. They don't let you access the feelings that will help you know what to do in the moment. So some narratives are useful and some are unhelpful. And she wonders if the girl who was murdered was enacting a failed script right. if she, she ran right if she dis, if she initiated the encounter of the violent man with the true image of himself as a violent man and suggests that that's the kind of thing that he couldn't survive 
and that would bring down lethal violence on on her head. Right. And that's exactly what O'Farrell doesn't do. Maggie, right. She doesn't, Maggie, she doesn't. She doesn't allow that narrative to get activated, right? Yeah. Instead, she, she stays in the birdwatching narrative, right? I mean, that, I mean, that, you know, that, that page really that's given to her gabbling, right? She says, I'm just gabbling, right? And all these things. And, you know, tell me, tell me what you know about birdwatching and, you know, tell me more. Oh, eider down. Oh, you know, all that. And then towards the end of it, right, she says, she starts talking about, oh, you know, oh, is that the time, right? When she says, oh, is that, is that the time? I must go back and they'll be looking for me. They know I'm out here and all that, right? And, and so she's, she's in a way warning him without explicitly warning him, implicitly warning him, right? You know, you'll be in, you'll be in danger if you do what you have in mind to do. I think it, it's Good. interesting there that her voice is her protection. Yes. That, that, that it's one of the longest sections in right. the chapter. And it would have unfolded in it's such a brief amount of time in the event itself, mm -hmm. takes on an outsize yeah. size yeah. in the chapter. And I think that contrast is notable, that she saves herself, in a sense, right. by moving him along, right. moving him out of the rape script, moving him out of the lethal violence script, moving him down that path right. where it's all downhill from here, which is you right. know, really right. rings yeah. in mind. And imagining people coming to help her. No one knows where she is, but imagining people right. coming, right. people looking for her and kind of inserting this other narrative, a narrative in which she doesn't die, in which she doesn't kill her. And, and you know, is that the, the presence of mind of a writer, a, a writer in formation? Is, is yeah. it a, a kind of gift of a narrative bent that saves her then and enables right. her to tell it now? Right. Yeah. And uh, it goes back to what you were saying, you know, about her foreknowledge and what we get about, you know, how everything that she's learned. Like, so one of the things when after the meeting with the policeman, you know, she says, well, it's one of the places where the difference between the historical present and the sort of perspective at the time of the action shifts to the perspective at the time of the telling. I could have said, right? I could have said that I had this foreknowledge and then, you know, I had this experience. I had this, I had this sixth sense as, a, as, as it were, right? Because of my experience, you know, and, and it's also, it's, I think, in that section, really, where she says it's 25 years later, right? I was 18 then. I'm now 43, right? And I think maybe we could spend a little bit of time on that, just thinking about the sort of the, the narrative act of the 43-year-old Farrell sort of re-entering sort of re the experience of the 18-year-old Maggie, right? And how this, uh, the chapter kind of works with that relationship between the 43-year-old and the 18-year-old. I, I really like that because it creates this image of O'Farrell coming back to help Maggie, okay. to, to sort of re-enter that scene and, yeah. and help her. Well, you know, what else could, you, could I, could you have done? And, and I don't, as the reader, 
believe there's anything Maggie could have said to that policeman. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. There's nothing. Uh-huh. She she could have shown the scar on her neck or the mark on her neck. None of it would have yeah. helped him. Yeah. But she but but O'Farrell is re-entering the scene. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the key to what, what you're pointing out here. And I think which what you know this can help us to think about is the relation between temporality and trauma, the way in which the traumatic experience casts the subject outside time and the with the burden of the impossibility of ordering time and getting it right. So you can't go back to the moment before it happened and do something that would have prevented the yeah. terrible thing from occurring. And ever after, you're belated and mm-hmm. you can't even tell it right because you mm-hmm. can't get it in order. The sort of signature trope is is shattering, which is, I think, a little bit what I was signaling in in our opening with the idea of paying paying attention to the syntax. Mm-hmm. This that all of these clauses that come together, sometimes independent, sometimes dependent clauses, but they're broken apart. And then they're they're laid end to end. Mm-hmm. When you look at the sentences, she is putting piecing something back together. Not that right. not that had an originary wholeness to yeah. it. Yeah. But something that wasn't previously told. Yeah. And so the piecing she has to do is narrative. She has to tell us tell us the story. And she and O'Farrell underscores that there's there are numerous wrong ways to do this. Right. That she herself she imagines that she did it wrong with the policeman. Yeah. I think she did it right. Yeah. I don't think there was any way that, yeah. that she could have persuaded him. Yeah. But and she that- says this isn't a story to dine out on. This isn't something to turn into a joke. But that's, you know, what I would observe about that is that's precisely what survivors of sexual assault often do with their stories to make them manageable psychically Mm -hmm. is to say, oh, that what a creep, what a perv. You know, he did this. Isn't that disgusting? And and to to cast it into some other kind of register where another one too right i mean like yeah that that this my story is just part of all these stories right it's it's you know that's not i mean i you know obviously different women tell the stories differently but there is this idea of well you know here we go again this this is this is an old story this is and i experienced it for the first time right right well, i i think i think survivors of all genders who have to tell a trauma story of sexual violence encounter the same thing okay and and it's the 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 difficulty is this is the same story that no one's listening to right yeah. so it's okay. it's it's yeah. it's on the teller and it keeps moving us to the ethical scene, and I and I was wondering what you think about 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 O'Farrell's mm-hmm. address throughout the chapter to the audience mm-hmm. as an ethical encounter about how to hear trauma narratives. Yeah, I think that's very much in play, and I think it's you know I think the ethics of the telling are impressive. On the one hand, they're they're challenging, right? Can can we hear? Can we? Can we do better than the policeman? Can we recognize both the singularity of her experience and the way it is part of a kind of culture of male violence that starts at school and so on, right? And then also, I think, just some of the subtle things that she does, like, you know, the the way in which 
she brings in the 22-year-old New Zealand woman, right? Mm -hmm. She's not telling that woman's story, right? but she's very much aware of that woman and uh, that woman having a fate, you know, that could have been hers, right? And, right. and, and so I think, you know, sort of the way she handles the, the other woman's experience is, you know, ethically very impressive. Right then, we get the other things like, like when the the detectives come, and at the end of that scene, you know, Vincent comes over and hands her, you know, tissue or handkerchief. Right. Well, that's how we know she's crying. Right. She doesn't do, you know, doesn't call attention to her to her her tears. Right. But there's a way in which, okay, by telling it that way. O'Farrell is, you know, bringing us in and saying, okay, you know, pay attention here. There's, there's a lot going on here, and I want you to be, to be thinking about it, right? And then I would say, and maybe this is a way to sort of move toward our end, there's a, there's a real ethical dimension to the ending, right? So, you know, uh, multiple multiple levels of it there right how do i how do i respond to my 6 year old daughter's request right to go up to go up the hill to go up to this place right which is calls back the her traveling you know her walking in the hill right and so there's a sort of how do i respond right i want to i want to be truthful <laughs> to my daughter and yet I want to be sensitive to who she is at six years old, you know. So how do I handle that, right? And the way that in terms of O'Farrell sort of using that as the end of the story of her experience at 18, right? There's, there's really, I think, some kind of very artful things going on. And again, it's sort of guiding us, but also leading, but also challenging us to, to sort of put this together, right? And in some ways complimenting us to say, well, you can put it together, you know, if, if you're following me. So, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. What I, do you think? <laughs> I, I, I like that reading. I think it highlights discretion mm -hmm. as an honorable form of representation that, you know, sometimes when there's a clamoring for survivors to tell their stories, you have to re remind, we have to remind ourselves that in, in conditions like with the policeman, where there's no possibility of being heard, it, mm -hmm. it's hardly ethical to demand that survivors, ex ex yeah. you know, expose their, their experiences, mm -hmm. that, that that's a re-traumatizing yeah, and that exactly. we should be on guard about that. Yeah. And that in moving us to that ending, that that she doesn't imagine that she and her daughter would be safe together. She doesn't imagine she could keep her six-year-old daughter safe. She yeah. collapses, in a sense, into the six-year-old mm -hmm. and doesn't understand something about their difference, about her adulthood. Because she does imagine, what if I would go back now? I would tell him that differently. But she doesn't quite see herself as a person who would be able to protect her daughter she sees them as as both. exposed exposed to risk both vulnerable um, right yeah vulnerable yeah right and i think you don't blame her you know i mean yeah she's not 18 but still you know in this culture in this you know 
right? The um, two of them together have no expectation of safety. That, exactly, that hasn't changed. Exactly, yeah, exactly, and so yeah. she concludes by saying, you know, we started by by highlighting that this is a a, a narrative of warning. Mm -hmm. It it's also a promise at the end. You know, she yeah. said, how to tell it, but I will. Well, exactly. And and you know, that's a little bit of a warning too. You right. know, it's you know that that there may that there will be an accounting right. that that's coming, and. This is the this is the first chapter of you know the yeah. memoir that's subtitled Seventeen Brushes with Death. Right. And and I don't know that I would urge I would urge our listeners to read this. I, mm. I love this memoir and, and to take your time uh with yeah. it. And 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 in sense to in a sense to sort of follow the advice that uh O'Farrell gives us in the first chapter, which is to figure out how you're gonna listen right. to to this and 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 to to let the memoir teach us how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So just one, one last point about the, but I will, right. The, though I think she, you know, because we've seen her tell this story, right. We have confidence that she will, right. That she's earned that, but I will. Yeah. You know, we nod. Yes, you will. In that, in that sense, she's right to feel confident that she'll be able to tell the story because she's told this one so well, so powerful. Right. O'Farrell, the writer, is yeah. in control. Yeah. Right. Right. So maybe final thoughts. Well, I since this was published in 2018, and this is a a, a chapter that I continue to insist should be talked about as a narrative of sexual violence, even though she served, she was not raped and she was not murdered, that it was an incipient experience, that we're reading this after the Me Too movement began in 2017. And, and in a sense, that was a cultural movement that tasked everyone to listen to these stories better. And I think this helped this chapter and other memoirs help us to really think about the role of storytelling in, in this sort of sea change about believing women, raising the credibility of women, and prompting the accountability for sexual abuse, that this is really, you know, something that strikes us as a story we need that's been told before that we need to listen to better. And and so I, I, I think this really helps us to understand how the power of Me Too was in large part as a narrative movement, mm -hmm. as a storytelling yeah. movement yeah. that that aggregated these stories together so that they couldn't be doubted in the same way. And that has really given all of us an opportunity to hear them differently. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. I think that's a nice note to end on. And thank you so much, Lee. I really enjoyed talking about this with you. Thank you, Jim. I enjoyed it too. Okay. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. And we'd appreciate your feedback. You can send it to us at projectnarrative at osu.edu, on our Facebook page, or to our Twitter account at State. And please join us for the October Project Narrative podcast when Jared Gardner will be in the guest chair. Thank you again. Thank you.